Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Check out our new newsletter at chinaecontalk.substack.com and rate us on iTunes. Thanks so much for Hangzhou Clay for reviewing the show and calling me Chi or down to earth, which is basically the best compliment you can possibly give a foreigner here in China. So, how does autocracy impact social capital? Can the impacts of social repression ripple out across centuries, creating a vicious autocratic cycle? Today on China Econ Talk, we're going back to the Qing Dynasty to find out. Our guest today, authors of papers on the aforementioned topics, is Melanie Mengxue, a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Economics and Center of Economic History at Northwestern University. Melanie, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan. So Noah Smith, a Bloomberg columnist and professor of finance at Stony Brook, recently wrote a column about the importance of economic history. In it, he said that, quote, neither graduate nor undergraduate programs generally require the subject. It's not that prestigious a field. Economic historians tend not to win Nobel Prizes, and not many professors get hired to work in this area. So I'm curious, Melanie, what drove you down this disciplinary path? And um, so I guess um, as a person, I naturally have uh, quite broad interests and has been educated in China. We took a bunch of classes in history, both of China and the world, uh, since a young age. And also, it, it's been seeing seeing things through the lens of you know, ancient times has proved to provide useful perspectives and understanding the current world. So to me, it wasn't really wasn't a surprise, or nor did I find it unusual to to bring in insights from history and into economics. Mm. So. How did your Fudan University economics classes compare to doing your PhD at George Mason? So Fudan, um, so as I mentioned, it has a really nice curriculum in general education. So、mm. the way we are, we learned economics is was perfectly you know, prepared me really well for about my later career.、Uh, in terms of、um, I, in my first year, I, I did history, philosophy, and a bunch of other classes.、Um, so in that way, George Mason is is also similar. And others, and getting standard training in, in new, new classical economics, I was also had the opportunity to to learn about the history of economic thought, but also take classes in in economic history. So、mm. I would say there is a, quite a lot of similarities between the two. And how about the differences? So difference,、um, I guess、um, Fudan is is one of the best universities in China. So we got some of the brightest kids on the program, and really enjoyed their company.、Uh, but in in a different way, I guess George Mason is the place where some of the first tier scholars in in the history of economic thought were gathered together. So I think it's quite philosophical. So I think that is somewhere I think my my skills to reason in a pretty High advanced level is was mostly developed over there.、Mm. So I'm curious, generally for economics historians, does the research start with finding a cool data set and thinking about what to do with it, or having a question and then hunting for、uh, something from 300 years ago? I would say a little bit of both. It's usually it's a very nice coincidence when you have both coming together. So、mm. you knew how you started with knowing there's some data on a certain question, and the question is interesting. But at the same time, you also see the generalizability of studying this question. 
So for me, it's it's almost never only one of the two things. Mm. Um, I, especially if you're doing a paper of, of this genre, um, which typically spans over pretty long periods of time, um, it, it's not just one cool data set. Um, it's at least several. <laughs> um, but and, but then the ability to to link those data sets together is closely tied to also being keenly aware of um, important questions. Is uh, So before we get to this paper, is there one data set you've come across in the literature that just strikes you as like the coolest or most interesting from from uh, Chinese history? Um, so unfortunately, if you work on China, um, you are the person who are going to be building most of the data sets. Mm. So the Chinese data, it, it usually doesn't come in the form of um, anything close to being a data set. So mm. it would be hard to give a good example, but I think some of the well-known data sets in the economic history of China uh, is one is the is the green price data mm. of the Qing dynasty. Mm. Like that data is really, I mean, it's unusually fine-grained. Um, it, it's, I think it has the frequency at, at a monthly level. I have not worked with data set myself, but it's something I definitely would look forward to working with um, at, at some point. So, ju- so just to start this conversation, can you walk us through what what a literary inquisition is and what role it played in Qing society? Okay, sure. Um, so, so the first, I think, to understand the nature of literary inquisition, which is basically accusations based on writings and speech that is seen as um, containing sub- subversive attitudes towards the emperor. Um, so to have this, um, to make sense um, for this whole concept of literary inquisitions, I think it's quite important to notice that the first the Qing dynasty, it was it had the foreign rulers. Mm. So different from all those native dynasties, the, Chin- the Han Chinese used to experience, the Qing dynasty featured foreign rulers who were not seen as legitimate rulers mm. by both the general public and, and the Han elites. So because of this tension between the ruler and the subjects and the it's especially the, the identity of ruler of, of being seen as foreign. Uh, those literary inquisitions took place uh, usually because of the suspicion that the challenge, the cases were had involved the materials that was a direct challenge or a questioning of of the identity of the rulers. For the purpose of the autocratic ruler at the times, it was just a useful tool to send out a strong signal that such behavior. And attitudes and ideas are not tolerated. So basically, it was a way to enforce the the Qing dynasty's uh, ideology, saying, "Hey, look, we're the real emperors now. Stop complaining. Stop going into the mountains and and writing mean poems about us because we're we're in charge, and you need to give us just as much re- respect as you granted to the to the Ming dynasty." And um, yeah, I mean that's definitely part of it. For especially the Qianlong emperor, and he has a really sensitive personality, and there. So was almost at the level of a paranoia uh, late in his age. It was the kind of respect that he definitely looked for. Yes. But also they worry about the effects of this ideas on a larger population. So that in that sense, it's not a different from any um, persecutions and most medieval Europe and modern times. So explain that a little bit. So those people, uh, even though... The cases we looked at had no direct link to any of the conflicts or revolts. But there's always this potential for those people and those ideas to spread around and and to lead to such events. 
So the same people who had those ideas and the, the, the books or the, the materials that was uh, was going through the persecution process might have been the people who were the main loyalists or the people who ran to the mountains, the people who helped to organize these uh, uprisings uh, with the intent to overthrow the Qing dynasty. Sure. So let's talk about some examples uh, of which you have some pretty colorful ones in your paper. My favorite was this scholar who wrote a dictionary. And in the introduction, you said that he dared to note that the Kangxi emperor, so Qianlong's uh, grandfather's dictionary, was missing, you know, a handful of characters. So so what happened to this guy? So, well, this guy is a really unfortunate example in, in like several in several ways. You know, first, he had a really unfortunate career before he became a, a dictionary maker. So he's one of those people who gathered an amount of human capital that he thought would be useful for some purposes. But obviously, his whole life was just wasted in taking exams. Mm. So he decided to opt for this rather harmless hobby of writing a dictionary. Um, but in the listeners, we know when there's people who do research, it's inevitable to compare your work with existing literature. And the Kanshi Emperor's um, dictionary happens to be one of the major works in, mm. in the time so so and so we know the one of the issues to have the Kangxi dictionary has is the dictionary does con- actually conclude in a lot of characters but it's really hard to to find any particular one mm. so it's organized in a way that's you know the modern and jargon or terminology it's not user friendly okay the dictionary maker and and question has promoted his work as one of the have, having one of the advantages over the Kangxi Emperor, which is the book uses this associated words strategy to organize, to reorganize the body of the knowledge we have. Sure. So I think this is a really nice invention then. and yeah, shouldn't be you know, a, a it's, problem. It's, it's 18th century pleco, right? Just making everyone's lives yeah. easier. Yeah, definitely. Um, unfortunately, this was not encouraged. Um, and just the fact that he thought it was appropriate to comment on emperor's work. I think that itself was really seen as inappropriate. Hmm. So it doesn't even matter in which we and what kind of comments he made. Yeah. So I think it was largely the the judgment he had. Sure. Um, it was the, what has upset the, the Chernobyl Emperor. So, yeah. so you write the wrong dictionary and nine generations of your family get destroyed. Joni, Juni Jozu, right? This is a, a rough, uh, a, a rough and rather capricious uh, ending for our for our poor dictionary maker. So yeah, the collective punishment scheme. I think I, I guess in the paper we're trying to make make this point. Um, it's one of the reasons why those persecution cases were so effective in generating deterrence effects, because um, it's it's just as one of the examples um, for average. Individual Chinese, if it was just himself, one had to uh, shoulder the consequences of his in no code to inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I guess the reaction, or, or you say the ripple effects of of this uh, the inquisitions would have been much more curtailed. Yeah, sure. That's- so so coming coming back to our theme of autocracy, basically what you what you argue is that these capricious killings on the part of the emperor actually give. Uh, you this really interesting data set of kind of random repression events throughout all of Chinese society, which you can then trace down through over time. That's right. So I'd like to give a few caveats in terms of the nature of those persecutions. Mm-hmm. So so the way to think of this is then first there is a very large random components because you know the idiosyncrasy of Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. If two characters can sound exactly the same, but has a different meaning. 
So a lot of those cases are exactly along those lines, um, characters that sound similar to taboo words um, under cer- certain circumstances and will constitute the grounds for the persecution. Uh, however, the judgment upon if this indeed is a case of nature inquisition or not often varies. Yeah, it has more has more to do with like what Chen Long had for breakfast that yes, day than right, the yeah. actual nature of the severity of the bad poem someone wrote. So yeah, and I think that's that's how we. Um, so that's that's one of the useful feature of those persecutions yeah. um, for for the purpose of identification. Yeah. Or let's when we think about um, yeah. if they are random cases that. Uh, that constitute random shocks to the society. Yeah, so unfortunate for these uh, these poor scholars, but great for you as an economic historian <laughs> a few hundred years later. So, for if we are curious about the facts of of persecutions on society, but then yes, because to the rest of the society that was totally unexpected, and no one had any idea when there would be such a case in the prefecture. Uh, that happened to people they familiar with and, and know about. So, so, so now, so now, let's bring up this idea of local charity. So, one of the things you argue in this paper is that is that these persecutions have an impact on the the prevalence and strength of local charities, and this as a proxy for social capital. Can you tease that out for us a little bit? So, okay. So, first, I like to clarify the nature of local charities in Chinese society. So, local charities had a history that go dating back usually to 1600s. So, mm. that's just before we had the literary inquisitions. So, in the 1600s, that's the time when the country became a, a bit more urbanized, and there has been more initiatives or endeavor by private individuals and especially local gentry to set up charities in order to provide services to the locals. So those are usually small organizations engaged in activities such as um, providing for the orphans or widows and the disadvantaged groups. Mm-hmm. So in the paper, we use this as a summary measure for social capital. But this is usually in, it's basically in the tradition of um, charitable giving as a proxy for uh, the the level of cooperations among individuals within the same community. Mm-hmm. However, we are agnostic about how exactly the inquisitions translates into a decline and in the local charities. There could be several mechanisms. It could be uh, the leadership over the charities became more hesitant mm-hmm. in becoming prominent figures in local society. It's one of the ways to catch attention or always or obviously be to go out in the public and to interact with other prominent individuals and trying to bring in uh, help from the larger society. Sure. Uh, so they wouldn't be much more hesitant to, to play such roles. So what happens when these literary inquisitions come to a town? How does it? How do the local charities end up getting impacted? I see. So, so first, I think the process of the literary inquisitions, as as mentioned in the paper, um, is usually intended to be highly public, right? So it is all those cases. First, it happens to people we know about. So if you were a village man and this guy who's a dictionary maker used to be helping or helping out others, um, usually you, you get those intellectuals in, in those local communities who provide useful service to the rest of them who sure. are usually illiterate. Then the first thing we, we all will notice is this person will no longer be in this role. Yeah. So that is the obvious point. But then it varies from case to case. Some of the cases are, are made intentionally public. You will, know, you will see cases where people executed 
Now, co-ops would be hung around on the wall just to you know, make sure that everyone knows about it. But then a lot of those cases mainly impacted the literati community. So mm. those are people who had chance to to just tell each other about it so that in the future, you know, both their, themselves and the future generations will stay away from such a behavior. Yeah. So I think that's the main thing. Where so just this psychological impact, knowing that the brightest shining star in this township was killed and all his children and all his cousins and all his uncles were also killed, has a, has a lasting impact on, on, as you end up showing literacy even hundreds of years later, is a fascinating finding, I think. So our understanding of the events is first you would see the such hesitation, but then this would translate into more of a, um, so let's say, it takes several steps to get there. So superficially, at the very first moment, you should, you should what we would expect to see is the individuals becoming more cautious. However, mm-hmm. this is a very long process for the local society to be entirely transformed and for the such long-lasting effects to be engendered. Yeah. So we would usually think that the accumulation or the depreciation of social capital is a long and accumulative and slow process. So as you see in the in the graph, um, it's within the four decades after the first persecution case, you, what you see is a steady decline in the number of the charities. And we're not really talking about very binary phenomenon. First, see a small decline in the charities, which translates into more of a, a withdrawing effect or, or, um, or later on. And such process could be self-reinforcing. Sure. So this is why we're seeing this is a, a trend of declining uh, until about four decades after, then you see a, a, a stabilizing effect. Sure. But but to at least for the period of Qing, we believe this is a. This is only a small and accumulative attitude, uh, small and accumulative process, but also there's aspect of transmission of uh, culture attitudes over generations. But this is a separate topic in in the cultural economic. Sure. So basically, the idea is we have we have an obvious mechanism of uh, you know fewer people donating to schools or to old age homes or what have you, um, but also the psychological um, cultural impact that you you just spoke to of of people being worried that the next political persecution is going to come because they were exposed to a, a particularly severe one at some point in this local region's history. Yes. Um, so in the paper, we cannot really distinguish between the two within the historical panel. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pretty sure this both has been going on because up until the, the point of um, 1800s, there was no no certain answer to the political climate. So in, in general, this is a period that was highly repressive. It's just the places that also ended up with this persecution cases. Uh, the repressive nature of the region was made salient. Mm-hmm. On the point of the charities, we really seen this as a revelation of uh, the local society transformed following those cases. But it's a very long and a slow process, as I mentioned earlier. However, in the modern cross-sections or in the period after the Qing dynasty, then we are able to distinguish between these two effects. So sure. that's what the rest of the paper is for. Sure. So now let's come to the fall of the Qing dynasty, the Republic mm-hmm. era, and then even coming down to the modern era, we still see the impacts of, of these repressions by the Qianlong Emperor 300 plus years ago. So what were the data sets you used there? And how did you tease out what impacts these repressions still have today? So for our purpose, we wanted to know, so how much of this is 
It's a simple substitution effect when you had the charities were became less engaged in the local society, and perhaps you no, know, there was just create a vacuum of services. So it could just be local communities were more impoverished, provided with less stuff. And the nice thing of of having this long run. Outcomes also being available is then we can look at the period when many of those services were provided by the state instead. Mm-hmm. So then you look at the socialist period, for example, when services such as charities, um, and which which basically uh, there was no more differences across regions. So it was all the same. Um, most of the, the public goods were provided by the state, but even in that context, we still see. The local, um, the local societies varies in important ways. Mm-hmm. So one set of our results uh, is also the first set of results for this post-Qing period is we look at the generalized trust. So this is an attitudes variable in the general social surveys, where people in, were in asked the question. So this is um, in the year of 2010, mm-hmm. when individuals were asked a question: Do you think you can trust strangers, or, or you should think you should be more careful? And the places where I'm sorry, do you think you could trust what? Oh, so how how much do you think you can trust the strangers? Strangers. So, so okay. this is a typical question in in the world in the survey value surveys mm-hmm. in order to uh, measure the level of generalized trust mm-hmm. in the society. What you see is the respondents from the prefectures with the literary inquisitions in the past, individuals were much less likely to say that they can trust the strangers. Okay. Which is sort of unbelievable, right? Um, that we're looking at something from three, four hundred years ago, which is still impacting the, the mindsets of people today. Um, I just want to underline, uh, I underline that finding. Can you talk a little bit about its its power, its efficacy, and, and, and how much, you know, out of every hundred people are, are ideas different? The way to think about it is not really people actively aware that there is this events, you know, a dictionary maker will be killed yeah, in the sure. 1770s, right? So this would be the wrong way to think about it. I mean, it does happen. People do remember it in, in the case of the dictionary maker. However, we wouldn't think that's what explains our findings. Yeah. But rather, it's more like it's more about the local society that was transformed by these events. And as I mentioned, through a very slow and accumulated process, that was the thing that it both produced this attitude that... Um, and which lasted in the long run. So it was the attitudes that lasted in the long and run. And were transmitted over time. Yeah, no, rather than the events themselves. Sure. So just a little bit on the data side, not the data on the empirical side. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a general social service done by the group of researchers and the and the university in, in China. Um, it was a joint effort. With this particular data set, we can look at a cross-section of about 30 prefectures which include roughly 3,300 in individuals. Um, so it's not a terribly large sample. This, this is mm-hmm. all, everyone, everything. So we did not leave out any. So it's mostly constrained by the scale of the survey itself. Sure. And we have to use the match, same match the sample we used in the historical panel. 
Yeah. So that's that's the main constraints. Yeah. What I thought was interesting is is when you think about trust in Chinese society, there are plenty of other historical events that could impact this. So you have to control for Taiping Tianguo, the Taiping Revolution. You have to control for Wenhua Dagaming, like just how how brutal your cultural revolution experience was in that particular town. But even through all of that, you still see this effect coming through the early Qing Dynasty. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, our effects were was fairly robust to many of those controls, not just the ones you mentioned, mm-hmm. but even just, you know, adding or leaving out a whole set of historical or contemporary controls. Mm-hmm. The main effects of Latin inquisitions are, are highly resilient. Yeah. So it, it does look to us that having this 150 years band under the Qing period with the exposure to repressive moments, that was an important experience for those local societies, which kind of makes sense given you, you realize the main feature of the Han, the Hai Qing period was, it was a very peaceful time. So people didn't really worry about um, other uh, dimensions of their life as you would see in, in a much more of a chaotic and disorganized phases of uh, history. So it was a, really a, a key threat to those individuals and, and, and literati. So those were the people who were financially well off, but intellectually restrained. Mm. And that's that's what I we we you know, both think of this literary inquisition as being um, a very different type of um, the persecutions as as the Soviet persecutions or the, the Cultural Revolution we saw later. Mm. So it was the kind of events that affects the, those minds without compromising the other aspects of, life, of their life. So that's, that's why we would not really be surprised that, that the main and the dominant effects that those events produced was along the dimensions we just mentioned. So it wasn't really about people then developed um, a different type of um, um, so it wasn't really about it wasn't really about the societies went into a, a different direction or ended up with a le- different level of economic development. Sure. But it was more about the society was structured differently. The yeah. people, as you mentioned at the very beginning, they became more isolated and they stopped to talk to each other. Yeah. So then, as a whole, they could not really uh, organize them among themselves or, uh, and defend themselves against uh, outside powers such as as a dictatorial state. Yeah. So it, again, so the comparison is like the Great Purge in 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 with Stalin in the 1930s or something, and where you have a where you have not only a hollowing out of the of the intellectual class, but also a fundamental shift in the economic structure of the country, the, the you know the political trends. But for this, it's this it's this interesting little uh, pinprick attack on the minds of the intellectual class in Chinese society, which ends up having this very um, targeted but also important impact on mindset that you see playing out hundreds of years later. Yeah, on the mention, uh, no, on the topic of important and importance, uh, that's something people tend to disagree greatly mm-hmm. <laughs> among themselves. <laughs> we tend to think this is a really important change mm-hmm. to the society. Mm-hmm. It's the level of freedom people believe they, they are enjoying. Um, but it, sadly, I think this freedom is one of those things that those who do lose it tend not to think it's all that important. So mm-hmm. this actually goes all the way to the later results we find. Yeah. Like, there, would, there would be individuals who... who in, subsequently would just adopt attitudes of um, being resigned. Um, and that's uh, 
sometimes there are the same individuals who tell you that they don't think it's that important to be able to participate in politics, to be able to um, to make their voice known and heard. So, mm-hmm. but for our purpose, I mean, this is an important change to society because those are things that differed among societies, I mean, probably taken for granted in the West, but often is missing in many other societies. We are here to provide explanation for why sometimes um, the attitudes to participate in the politics are, are missing in some societies. So again, so it's the idea that through these uh, literary inquisitions and other things that have happened in Chinese history over time, mm-hmm. uh, the population uh, has grown less excited, interested, more resigned to a more autocratic system of government in which they have less of a say. Yeah, and what we do find is even more than that, it's like a general disengagement or to shy away from anything that related to political participation. Mm -hmm. So even you look at their participation in in local committees, which these days doesn't have much to do with the autocratic government per se, you still see important differences. It's, it's, you know, it's this, it's this, you know, Robert Putnam bowling alone idea, um, but coming through history as well as through, you know, what whatever technological chains, how other factors yeah. that people uh, tend to assign, assign for reasons that today's people are maybe less engaged than immigrants to the U.S., you know, the Quakers who are, had their town meetings every week in, in New England or what have you. Yeah, yeah. So we saw this as a, as a, a receding, like general, it's a, it's a withdrawing effect, a withdrawing from this type of activity. So any activities, and um, that would make them stand out. Mm-hmm. And rather than a specific attitude, no change towards a particular type of political region. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we made very uh, we carefully distinguished between these two hypotheses, because many believe that we do not see autocratic reform um, or democratic reform is because people do not want democracy. Uh, this is not what we find. We find those individuals who are just like everyone else. Like, if anything, they're probably even more inclined to have a democracy. Um, problem, the difference, the main difference, and the real difference is that they have been also trained to, or to be, you know, to be taught those those attitudes, probably by their parents or, or just by the community norms. Um, they've been taught that those you know, those efforts are just going to be of no use or not only going to get themselves into trouble. So sure. that's that's the difference. And we think this is a, for the purpose of literature, or for the purpose of research, that this is a, a novel contribution. But as social scientists, we also thought this is this is just previously, you know, this has not been noticed before. We'd like to enrich our understanding of how those autocracy or democratic regions have come about. Yeah, because this the concept you hear pretty, pretty frequently is like the virtuous cycle of democracy, right? And, you know, maybe the first 10 years of democracy are the hardest when everyone's ideas are uh, ideas are changing and they're all learning to engage with um, with political participation and whatnot. But the longer yeah. the longer a country has a democratic system, the more likely it is to be self-sustaining because mindsets change, people go more grow more comfortable people start to um, trust that getting involved in politics won't mean that their you know children and grandchildren will all be wiped off the face of the earth but what you're arguing is that there's also the same reinforcement mechanism for autocracies uh, where the mindsets change and it, it ends up becoming easier for autocratic uh, regions to stay autocratic over time the longer they've had that history the more likely it is to keep going forward yeah definitely definitely I think that's that's exactly the right way to think about it yeah I think that also is it's you no, know, it's what you've seen on the, 
and the scholars have discovered was um, the the former Soviet states, which uh, it just turns out that it was incredibly hard to get people to participate um, mm-hmm. after the democratic transition. Like, I think that's what poses a threat to a lot of those efforts to try and to build new democracies out of places with a pretty long history of autocracy. In the case of China, that actually also is, is important for understanding why the status quo has been uh, highly resilient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A- anything else on this paper you'd like to mention? Um, I guess we 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 didn't really have a chance to to talk about the um, the the set of results on on the basic education, which I think it's probably useful to to just to to show this other aspect of of, of change in the society. Mm-hmm. I think to, by this point, it could still be some of the, the doubts about the nature of this change. But once you have the results on um, the basic education, and we are able to show that the effects of those persecutions and the long-run impact of those persecutions um, on the basic education is really only there when the schoolings were provided in a decentralized manner and in an informal way. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it wasn't really um, the other. Um, it wasn't really that the persecutions were transforming societies again. And related to earlier discussion, that in a much more comprehensive way. So the basic education in China was provided by local gentry um, up until the point of early 20th century. Sure. And those are the places that there was visible facts of of the literary inquisitions. When once the schooling became more organized by the the government by the state, and especially. Um, in a more centralized fashion, then there is no longer a correlation between the persecutions and the schooling. What this tells us, other than there was an effect um, on the schooling, but also there is an effect uh, most likely transmitted through the ability for the locals to organize among themselves as basic, as basic educations were provided by those locals. And also tells us that it, it looks like autocratic regions had the advantage uh, in places where where the social capitals were low, because mm-hmm. this is a, almost examples through which we can see how those individuals from the place with low level of the social capital could have been more uh, both be more used to, but or even more prefer to have an autocracy. Yeah. So so the idea then being okay, we have a we have a, a gentry house that gets wiped out. Everyone's scared. There's maybe less economic resources. So those those local gentry who saw this literary inquisition happen end up contributing less money to the schools locally. And that is something that ends up playing out over hundreds of years. And you can find this in literacy rates even at the very end of the Qing dynasty. So we look at period by period and across urban rural China. So in, in the rural China, oh, schoolings were organized in the way we just discussed. It was the local gentry, those mm-hmm. ones who were, in, in, they were given, a, um, well, they both were given authority, were expected to provide schools. But once you look at the urban areas, when the schools were provided in a different way, then there's no longer a link between literary inquisitions and the literacy. Mm-hmm. Which this tells us is the state in some domain, domains, such as schooling, this seem to, to be able to remedy the consequences of having low social capital. Mm. But there's an obvious cost to this, which is the ability to, for the schooling to be provided in a more decentralized way um, as stripped away from the communities. Okay, so on, so on the one hand, we have, we have the central government saying, we're going to pay for all these schools, we're going to make sure you have teachers here, but that 
means that the local uh, society ends up being a little weakened because they're less self-reliant and they're less able to kind of foster differing ideas um, because the the you know the textbooks the teachers are all being trained in a central place and then coming down to the villages as opposed to being grown more locally. So um, so this is itself quite a big debate. Uh, we don't really want to get into that in terms of like schooling. Should there be centralized or decentralized? Because there are many different. No, there is actually an active economics literature on this. Mm-hmm. But we would like to say is. Having a low level of social capital does seem to take away some of the options. So in some sense, it forces people to be subjected to a To buy more into the autocratic yeah. system. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. So by the way, listenership, if you're, interest, if you're interested in this topic of li- literary inquisitions, I'd highly recommend you to check out Jonathan Spence's Treason by the Book, which is a deep dive and a really beautifully written and poignant look at one of uh, literati's uh, tang- tangle, tangle with the Ching uh, judicial system and, to, and you know, goes, goes deep in, to, into how a few characters he written wrong and subversively ended up ruining his life and the life of his whole village. So for a, for a more in-depth look at that, uh, do check out Jonathan Spence's book. Okay, so now turning to uh, another one of your papers, Melanie, uh, the idea of this cotton revolution in China, which started way back in the Yuan Dynasty in 1300, and how it impacted views on gender equity even to this day. So what was the cotton revolution and what were the mechanisms for it to impact modern China? So I'll start with the the first question. So the cotton revolution is a period where women were using far more productive technology to produce cotton textiles than before. Mm -hmm. So the key change during this period translated into income terms is it was very simple as women were just making much more money mm-hmm. uh, than before and but also relative to their husbands so this provides us with the opportunity to examine the effects of having a gender specific income shock um, and see if there's any uh, potential for such interventions to generate effects on the gender norms mm-hmm. so they like to situate this in the literature where many of the uh, Past and past attempts has been made to um, to in, to change with the goal to change the gender uh, gender norms. Unfortunately, this is an area where most of the efforts have not paid off. Although there is economic theory that suggested that uh, improvement in women's economic status should benefit them in various ways, but the link between their in- economic status and their overall status has been tenuous. Mm-hmm. However, in my paper, I'm able to show that with a sustained and, and, and a large-scale economic shock like the Cotton Revolution, and it's in, indeed possible to change gender-equitable beliefs, including the attitudes towards women and their ability uh, to accomplish goals. Sure. The main results in the paper is that I find places with the Cotton Revolution from the period of 1300s to the mid-19th century um, later has a more favorable view about the woman, is more likely to think they are capable, and, and has less incentives, I mean, the parents' wise to engage in sex selection. But you also see outcomes such as the head of the household more likely to be the wife, mm-hmm. and women were more likely to participate in the labor force during the period when there was a free market. Um, I think the main takeaway from the paper is, unlike a, a more static view about about culture, which, you know, take it as given and believe it's just a stable and a predetermined 
and thing. Um, so in this paper, we do find that economic forces are highly relevant. Yeah. Um, in we you know, instead a of, bit of a, a bit yeah. of a communist, a bit of a, a <laughs> communist reading, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, it does really, and yeah, I think that's right. So in in this anthropological literature, not communist, Yeah, in the in the anthropological literature, there's indeed this culture um, materialism view about gender inequality or you no know, attitudes towards women being um, no attitudes towards women. And the gender inequality does have its roots in the economic inequality between man and woman. Mm-hmm. And first, it would have its roots in man's comparative advantage in the warfare and to provide defense for the community. But later, it's more about the income contribution by different genders. Sure. So the paper doesn't fit into or to blend into this literature nicely. Um, and from this economics perspective, um, so which I believe is, is also one of, one of the contributions of the paper. So do you find this a depressing or an encouraging finding? Um, well, so this is a more like a, if the glass is a half full and a half empty question. Um, so in one hand, I think this is encouraging because because you know, there is a link and it does look like even some of the most resilient attitude, resilient aspects of gender norms are subjected to change, mm-hmm. um, which stands... Yeah, after after three <laughs> dynasties later, right? <laughs> so the precise time of the change we cannot determine. So in the paper, we have some evidence on, on the, where the suicide rates um, were being lower uh, about 200 years <laughs> into the yeah. Cotton uh, Revolution, but we don't really know the precise timing. However, qualitatively, I think this is the first paper to show that in income or have the potential, and income or economic related change has the potential to permanently transform gender norms. Yeah, don't think this is something that's been done before. So there has been work on income, uh, I mean, economic change and the culture change goes hand in hand, uh, but there hasn't been any work to show that an economic change can lead to persistent differences in culture. Sure. And this is particularly encouraging when you put this in the context of in the past 30 years, there's massive improvement in women's economic standing, uh, but comes with very little change in in the questions we examine in the paper, yeah. such as women or just as capable as men. So yeah. in that sense, we would say that economic changes, and at least in the case of cotton revolution, translates into gains in you know, gender norms is 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 encouraging. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's interesting because uh, a lot of our a lot of our past topics and guests on China Econ Talk have all been talking about oh you know this is how Totiao is going to change the world and this is how you know and this is how like the 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 Q4 GDP rate of China is something really important. But zooming out a little bit, it's it's important to understand that a lot of these societal changes, you know, some of them can happen really fast. Um, you know, and and you know, you no one would argue that wasting hasn't changed Chinese society. But on the other hand, you have this stuff, uh, these legacies that we've been talking about for the past hour that are hundreds and hundreds of years long. And there's another way to look at the, the pace of change in China, which is much more slow and much more gradual and much more building on and on itself uh, in, in broader historical patterns. Uh, so. So, Melanie, any recommendations for for listeners out there who've uh, maybe this this conversation sparked an interest in Chinese economic history, who are looking for uh, you know one or two books in English to get their uh, uh, get their feet wet in this field? 
And I would recommend Philip Kohn's work on China in general. So mm-hmm. he's been writing about the state, well, the building of the state in China in the past 150 years. Mm-hmm. So I taught some of his work in class. Um, I think, yeah, Philip Kohn is, is, is one of the scholars I highly admire. Awesome. Okay, so we'll, we'll link to some of his work in the, in the show notes. Melanie, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Oh, thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the